And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Heidi Heitkamp is one of the most authentic and impressive people I've met in politics. North Dakota through and through, the former senator speaks from the heart and the heartland. But make no mistake about it, she's also a deeply incisive political and policy thinker. And what she's been thinking a lot about lately is how to reconnect Democrats with rural and small town America. She's a great person with a wonderful story, currently a fellow at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. Here's my conversation with former Senator Heidi Heitkamp. Senator Heidi Heitkamp, it's great to see you. Uh, we've seen a lot of each other lately. You're a fellow at the Institute of Politics, and it's been an absolute uh, delight. And we, you know, as we uh, begin this conversation, uh, the news came within the last hour that Rush Limbaugh has passed away. And I thought, who better to ask about his impact on our politics and on rural America than someone who is so connected to rural America? Uh, tell me what your thoughts were when you heard that news. Well, I don't want to be uncharitable, um, but I did have a have a vision of him standing in line at the pearly gates, uh, having to answer some pretty tough questions about whether he uh, lived a life that um, enhanced other people's lives. If that can be meanly said, I guess I shouldn't prejudge yeah. things. It's not up to me. But you and I both know he's not a guy who people have neutral feelings about. Uh, either you hate Rush Limbaugh or you love Rush Limbaugh, but there are very few people uh, in between. But a lot of the people who loved him are your neighbors in North Dakota. Well, you know, I think there is this uh, kind of belief, especially people who weren't here at the beginning of talk radio and, and the explosion that was, in fact, Rush Limbaugh. And I think it's fair to say that um, he exploded onto the media world. Um, they have a real tendency, I think, to blame Fox News and they forget that the genesis and the beginning of media that was polarizing and aggressive and um uh, in some ways, mean-spirited was really with the Rush Limbaugh show. And the impact you could see actually on bumper stickers in North Dakota. And this was when, my, when you know, 30-plus years ago, uh, you would see bumper stick, stickers saying, uh, beep if you're listening to Rush. And um, it really was the beginning of um, of this reaction, I think, to say whatever is on your mind, no matter how mean-spirited it is, and that somehow is okay. And um, I think it really then grew into Fox News. Everybody saw how commercially viable that kind of language was, and, um, and, and that's the beginning of polarized media, in my opinion. But a lot of people, whether they had the bumper sticker or not, a lot of people listened to him. 28 million listeners at, at I don't know what the current number would have been. But uh, why did people listen to him? Why did he find such an audience in, uh, you know, in, in, in areas like yours? Well, I think the first thing you have to think about is that in many ways, he was the only thing on. So if they were carrying him on one of a very, uh, you know, a radio station that had a wide reach, that's who you listen to. And then it was entertaining. I mean, it yeah. was fun. It was funny. He was funny. Yeah. Um, and we should, we can't take that away, that entertainment factor. But but honestly, I wonder if he would have had the kind of impact if he had to compete in today's media where there's podcasts, there is so much more available, there's serious radio, there, there there's yeah. so many more mediums you can access in your car, or your tractor. Yeah. How can you uh, how can you compete with the Axe Files? I mean, really. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when you think about it. You talk about him as an entertainer. He wasn't just a, a forerunner of Fox News, but he was a for, forerunner of Donald Trump, uh, the sort of entertainer politician. And, you know, it's no, it, it, the symbolism of Trump presenting Rush Limbaugh with a Medal of Freedom in the, uh, in the, in the House chamber uh, when he made his, uh, uh, when he made his final uh, 
State of the Union speech was really significant because there is a direct line between Rush Limbaugh and Trump and Trumpism. Oh, there's no doubt. And and I think um, the president, President Trump, took a page from Rush Limbaugh and decided, look, political dialogue to have an impact and to be to be lasting has to be entertaining. And, you know, the, the one thing that I tell people when they criticize President Trump's rallies, I said, when you watch the rallies and when you see the rallies, people are having fun there. They're having fun being, you know, yeah. there's kind of a tailgate-like atmosphere beforehand. Yeah. And then there's the, the, the event and people are dancing and singing. And, and, and I, think, I think you can't underestimate the impact of having fun in that kind of venue. And I think Rush Limbaugh, whether you loved him or hated him, was an entertaining guy. He, he would say things that people would talk about the next day. And um, that is his lasting legacy. Uh, and it also is America's lasting curse. <laughs> yeah, that quality of uh, that entertainer. You're, you're quite right. Those those Trump rallies, you know, uh, much like Limbaugh, you either hated them or you love them. But it, it's really, you know, he was like a, a Trump is like a stand up. Uh, uh, he does two hours of kind of stand up uh, mm-hmm. at these rallies and uh, very much borrows from from Limbaugh. Well, and then if I can just compare it, when you went to a an event for Hillary Clinton in 16, which I did, you know, you're going to hear how many windmills she's going to put up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, not it was as, always not about as much policy. fun, huh? Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. There were, there were people listening intently, but, but you know, it, it was, I'm competent, and that was her message. And Trump's message was, I'm fun, and I'm now giving you permission to talk however the hell you want to talk. Um, in life, including cussing, even if you're evangelical. So again, let me just go back to this point, though. He found a big audience. Limbaugh did, and obviously Trump has, uh, in in places like uh, Mantador, North Dakota, where you grew up. Did I say it right? Yep. You sure did. Congratulations. Yeah, I always get North Dakota wrong, but no. <laughs> the but uh, did he? Uh, uh, but what is it? What is it about their messages that have found such an audience uh, among your neighbors? I think the first thing that they do is they culturally connect, right? So, so connect culturally. I'm like you, you know. I'm kind of a bigger guy, you know, and I know how to have fun, and and uh, that they uh, that that cultural connection is there. I used to say this about Donald Trump. People would say, what's he going to say tomorrow? I said, I don't know. Go down to the Morton Bar and listen to what they're talking about down there. That's what Trump's going to talk about. I think there was always this sense that people like Limbaugh and Trump led the discussion when they were just amplifying what was probably already happening um, in in places like uh, the Manador Bar and the Morton Bar and and probably there's even some downtown Chicago bars that you could mention that I'm sure yeah. um, that they would reflect what's being said in those pubs. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, Limbaugh came from Cape Girardeau, Missouri. You know, Trump uh, obviously came from an entirely different place, but intuitively got uh, that messaging and, and that sort of appealed as a sense of uh, uh, you know that 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 cultural connection and and a sen- the sense of uh, cultural resentment toward the elites, uh, you know the smarty pants experts always telling them what to do, government. Uh, you know it was political. It, it, the 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 kind of backlash against political correctness. Yeah, that that doesn't get talked about enough. So why is it that that takes root the way it did? How did Rush Limbaugh get? to 28 or 30 million, whatever number of listeners he did. How does a Trump take root? And But you don't really see an analogous kind of audience on, uh, on the left. But one thing I would say, David, is their demographic is dwindling, right? Mm-hmm. So they hit about the time that, that uh, you know, white male, you know, majority kind of, thinking was what you would have in the political discourse. Um, Trump wasn't able to, you know, kind of leap into uh, uh, a different demographic. He had to rely on a large turnout 
in the demographic that he was in. And so I think they're a product of their time. They're a product of the, the place and space that they exist. And one has to wonder, given the gender gap, given the racial gap in uh, politically in Trump supporters, whether it's sustainable. I mean, he peaked at exactly the right time, but he also had a huge, um, uh, emo- people had a big emotional connection to Donald Trump and still do. And that's the piece that I don't get because in rural America, you don't brag. In rural America, you don't lie. In rural America, you don't go back on your word. Your handshakes, your bond. And I can show you a lifelong uh, behaviors of Donald Trump that are exactly the opposite of what I would expect would be the reflective um, rural values, but yet huge emotional attachment to Donald Trump in rural America. You obviously have this conversation with people all the time. In fact, you've been having great conversations uh, at the Institute of Politics with uh people uh, who are your neighbors and uh, uh, f- friends from North Dakota. What do they say in answer to that question? You must ask them this question. Well, sure. I mean, when I say in the initial stages, people would say, well, you know, you need to be supporting when I was still in office, you need to be supporting Donald Trump. And, you know, I would my reaction was when I think he's right, I'll be right there fighting with him. Um, And then I would turn it on him and I would say, but doesn't it bother you that he lies? You know, just because I thought that was like like such a character flaw. And what I would get back would be kind of a couple blinks and they'd say, oh, they all lie. They did not say he didn't lie. They just said they all lie. You know, like it it doesn't matter. And and that was absolutely disturbing that the people who are more disturbing are the people who believe their lies. But I don't think that's the majority of people in rural America. Quite honestly, yeah. I think they know he was a big fibber. They know he was a big bragger. But yet they when when presented what they thought was with a with a non viable alternative, they were going to be on his team. You talk about the fact that people remain devoted to him. He still has an 80 percent approval rating after all that's transpired uh, among Republican voters. And you see this battle between uh, uh, Mitch McConnell, your old colleague in the Senate, and uh, Trump now, and it really feels like Trump has the upper upper hand uh, in that in that battle, at least starting out, uh, because he is uh, he is well liked among Republicans. Thirty six percent of them say they have a very favorable view of him. McConnell is deeply unpopular uh, with Republicans. So what happens now in the Republican Party? Uh, who who's going to call the shots? Are we going to see more sort of right wing populists in the in the form of Trump emerging here, knocking off more moderate voices, or or is is McConnell playing a long game that he can somehow win? Well, first off, I want to say that Donald Trump gave populists a bad name. I always considered myself a populist. Um, I think Donald Trump's an opportunist. Um, so. I'm not going to uh, dignify him by calling him a populist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, he's not. Um, but but what I would say is um, we don't know yet. Um, how does Donald Trump stay relevant? How does Donald Trump stay in kind of front row and center? You know, last week was a big Donald Trump week. You know, he was he was uh, being impeached that we had the trial um, that, you know, then hell, of a, way to, hell of a way to stay in the news. But yeah, yeah, well, that's right. But but then right afterwards, had Mitch McConnell said nothing instead of making a speech, which basically um, condemned uh, uh, President Trump um, for for history's sake, I think. It, so Mitch McConnell um, uh, made him relevant this week. So where is the relevance next week? And you know, as well as I know, when you aren't on television, when you aren't being talked about, even if people feel, you know, like warm and fuzzy about you, even if people, you know, like you, you don't have a platform. And I think that the, the better I, I'm going to be better able to answer that question three months from now. To see if he can assemble a platform. You're talking about yeah, get, get back on I mean, TV or find through Parler or somewhere else a, uh, a platform or on social media. Or, you know, where, where mm-hmm. People don't know how to find those places. Only the hardcore conspiracy theorists or the hardcore you know, white supremacists know how to find various 
forms and formats that he's going to be at. But not having access to Twitter yeah. has has been a huge disadvantage for this president, and they know it. You know, people say, well, he's been, you know, he's been, um, uh, you know, his free speech rights have been limited by this. And you're saying, no, you could still go on Fox News. You could still, right. you know, write an op-ed for whatever newspaper you want to write an op-ed. But not having that instantaneous reaction that we've all become addicted to in Twitter, you know, where, oh, my, oh, look what happened today. I wonder what Trump's thinking about it. And you have to turn on a radio station or you have to go someplace right. else to get it and not in a Twitter feed. Yeah. I think it, I think, I think it has limited his impact, but it's also probably lower lowered everybody's blood pressure a little bit too. But uh, <laughs> do you, when you saw the vote in the Senate on, do you, I assume you watched the impeachment hearings or a lot of the impeachment hearings. Uh, first of all, what was your general reaction to it, and what was your reaction to the vote? Uh, because you know, I guess my expectation was never that large numbers of Republicans were going to bolt from Trump because he is popular with 80 percent of the party. And as you know, um, you know, uh, you know my, my standard joke, I've told it here a hundred times. I'll say it again. There's a reason profiles encourages such a slim volume. You know, politicians generally, they, they call themselves leaders, but they 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 often march out to get in front of the parade that that has gathered uh, and they read where the parade is going and they march out in front of it. Right now, the parade is marching in Trump's direction. But oh, tell me what uh, you saw and it, did any of it surprise you? Well, none of it surprised me. I thought maybe a couple more. I thought maybe you'd get Shelby and maybe Portman um, just because they don't risk retiring. anything. Yeah. Yeah. But but so so when I looked at the Senate vote, the Senate Republican vote, I saw Richard Burr, which was a surprise and no one he wasn't on a lot of radar, but but he's retiring. I think he's a straight shooter. Plus, Richard Burr has had access to a lot of intelligence. Right. As, being as the, the chairman chair of the, the intelligence, intelligence yeah. committee. Yeah. So I think his his his, uh, his lens was a little sharper than some of the other lenses in terms of the danger that right-wing supremacists, um, uh, you know, basically um, present to our country. Um, so Richard Burr and um, and Toomey, okay, let's put them aside. They're retiring. They risk nothing. Then let's go to the Susan Collins, the Ben Sass, the, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the ones who were just recently reelected. Okay, so Cassidy, although that six, surprised me, too. Cassidy, yeah, uh, not not so much. He's a pretty straight shooter, you know. I think I think people who had a pretty good life before they came to the Senate tend to be a little bit more, uh, you know. He's a physician, well regarded, did a lot of charity clinic work, you know. He's an interesting guy, and and not to be discredited. And so Cassidy put him aside. And and say okay, they just got reelected. Then you've got Romney. You know, President Trump has never been outrageously popular in Utah. Um, in part, I think because of, of um, he doesn't appeal to people uh, in the Mormon faith very much. So there's a, that leaves us with one person who actually left it all out in the field and rest all. Yep. And I think I think. Uh, she is for your volume of profiles and courage. If you're going to nominate someone, you would nominate Lisa for profiles yeah. and courage. You, you tell me your impressions of her. Well, I, I, I'm completely biased. All right. <laughs> Lisa and I did tons of work together, whether it was in oil and gas, where we worked on opening um, the oil industry, the domestic oil industry into the international markets, whether it was doing some uh, some natural resources stuff and conservation stuff. And, and then where we really bonded was on uh, indigenous people's rights. And she was my co-sponsor on Savannah's Act and she was my co-sponsor on uh, something called the Commission on the Status of Native American Children. I, I consider her um, one of the most amazing people that I served with just because she is so thoughtful and so um, principled and principled beyond belief. And, you know, I certainly hope she says she's going to run again. And, you know, I will be up there going door to door for her if she thinks that would be helpful. Yeah, you should ask. Maybe it would help if you got, went door to door for her opponent. <laughs> so you should tell her either so. way. I think, 
Yeah, she, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever she needs me to do, I think, I think the Senate is a better place because she is there. And she's one of the few people that I can say is indispensable in the Senate because she has a conscience about what she does every day. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. Talk to me about Mantador and tell me about growing up there. Population 90 when you were growing up there? Yeah, I always love saying uh, the population was 90 and my family was one tenth the people in Mantador. <laughs> um, the, the other thing is um, very Catholic. Um, you know, I, when I give speeches about Mandor, I talk about three things. The VFW, which was the smallest town to have a VFW post in the country, still has a VFW post. Um, my dad was instrumental in doing that. They told him he couldn't do it. And in the true high camp fashion, when you tell high camp they can't, they always make sure they do. <laughs> um, and so, so um, being respectful of veterans, honoring service was always part of it. Um, in spite of uh, being a very small school district, it had its own elementary school, which I think is another institution that was so critical growing up is that we had our own little school and, um, you know, it was funded and built by the community. And they were very, very proud that they built a new school building for what was, in fact, the baby boom generation, the school that I went to for eight years before I went to high school in Hankinson. And then obviously the last institution was St. Peter's and Paul's Church. Um, St. Peter and Paul, uh, um, which was our Catholic church, very heavily Catholic area. Um, and uh, we In keeping we with that theme, you were one of seven, to, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. And, uh, and, and our family wasn't outrageously large for the yeah, area. Probably 90 money. people. You probably had like 10 families. Well, well, you got to remember that. Or no, it was mainly grandpas and grandmas who moved into town from from uh, the farm. I see. You know, and and my dad was uh, delivered bulk gas until um, his company came out of um, you know basically did not uh, supply the gas anymore, and he had to find something else. So he became a seasonal construction worker. And my mom was a school cook and a janitor. And you know, when you look at um, kind of the lessons of post-World um, War II, I think a lot of policymakers in, saw, boy, that GI Bill worked pretty well. It really built a middle class. It allowed, you know, these GIs who would never have had thought about going to college, gave them a chance to go to college and build a house and build a business. How about if we extend that to other people? And so as a result, these seven kids, my mom had seven kids in nine years. Um, when I was born, I was the fourth and the oldest was two and there were no twins. It's possible. I could walk you through it, but I won't. <laughs> um, the, the, um, you know, but we all went to college. We all had that opportunity. And it was really that opportunity that I think, um, you know, when, when you see what providing opportunity does, um, and you see what it does, not just for families, but you see what it does for the country in building a middle class, you get the sense that there is a role for government in all this. We would never have gone to college if it hadn't been number one for state support for um, state institutions, which has dwindled. Yeah, you went and to the University of North Dakota. If it hadn't been for stu student loans. And, and so, um, you know, I'm grateful every day that the country invested in me. And I think that we're proof positive, my family, that when you make an investment in children in particular, you're going to reap pretty good rewards. We just have to make that investment more equal. And we have to recommit ourselves to that investment in this country. Yeah. You know, we talked about Limbaugh earlier. One of the projects uh, of the Republican right for the last uh, 40 years and really longer, but since it became mainstream with Reagan was uh, to make government uh, a a target, a villain, a a, a, a source of, of negativism. Um, and so you talk about the positive role that government can play, but that is not the impression I bet that um, a lot of your neighbors have. 
and and frankly, not just your neighbors, but uh, more more broadly, uh, that's a big problem, isn't it? I was talking to someone today about the industrial age and in the late 1800s and how it spawned this progressive movement of Teddy Roosevelt, uh, where government became a force. And the populist movement. And a populist movement. Yes, 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 yes. Hey, I'm not trying to disparage populism, but progressive populism. No, Trump already did that for us. I just want to reestablish there are values in populism. But it strikes me that then and when the next Roosevelt came along, government was still seen as a force for for everyday people, seen as a force for good. Um, It's not seen that way anymore in the the minds of uh, a lot of people, and especially... Uh, among your neighbors. So how do you solve that? I think there is this amazing disconnect and we saw it and and I'm sure you saw it when you were in the Obama White House, you know, when people were carrying signs saying, keep your government hands off my Medicare. (laughs) Yes. You know, we have now, now there is this kind of take it for granted kind of event. You take a look at farmers. Farmers have had the largest ad hoc investment of dollars in the history of taxpayer dollars in almost our history in the last during the Trump years, but yet they'll damn the government. Um, you know, so so there has been a disconnect between what government provides. Right now, we're going through this terrible situation in Texas, and I feel for Texas. I mean, I think, you know, was it for a foreseeable event? Who knows? They're going to have to analyze this, but it clearly is a government failure. You know, when you when you basically say we aren't going to interject a kind of regulation that will guarantee this redundancy, this is what you get. Now, we're experiencing rolling blackouts in other parts of the country, but not a complete shutdown of the electric grid. And people can say, well, that's clean energy. Oh, get over it. This is Texas. I mean, you know, only 13 percent of what's not performing on the grid is is uh, is renewables. And so we we haven't connected the dots. And because people like Rush Limbaugh, and it, it in some ways it started with Ronald Reagan, right? Yes. Um, when people start saying government's your, the enemy and, and they forget that government is who provides, provides uh, public education and, and public safety and uh, clean water and, you know, all those things that government does. You know, that, I wish I had recorded um, a speech that Byron Dorgan used to give about one of what your predecessors, you, you took his seat in the Senate. No, you didn't. But no, you, you took, took Ken Conrad's seat. Yeah. But he's one of your predecessors in the Senate from North Dakota. Yeah, and he's probably the best known populist. Yes. <laughs> when he was there, I mean, he would tell you're you he's good. A You're good. You're very good on message. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the, the thing about Byron is he would talk about how um, he, he would start talking about how his mother was in a tragic car accident with a drunk driver and died. And, and he would talk about how government was part of that experience for him, from the people showing up in the ambulance to the criminal justice system to, you know, um, all of the kind of public safety people along the way. And he would say, when you're damning government, think about what they do and who they are. And, you know, we don't do enough of that to, to kind of connect the dots. Um, it's easy to demonize because people like Rush Limbaugh go out every day and say the government's the problem. And in some ways, uh, you know, and, and this has not gotten me any, uh, any friends in the, pop, in the uh, progressive movement, but I used to stand up in the Democratic caucus and say, look, I believe that regulation is necessary and important, but we can't be the party of stupid regulation. And so when people tell you, I don't know why you're making me do this, maybe you should listen to them. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that the, the, the crossover becomes when people feel like government is intruding in their private life. Um, and you saw that with the mask mandate. You saw it with, with um, kind of the whole reaction to COVID that, that government can't tell me what to do um, kind, of, kind of reaction uh, or that they're they're in my space and I don't want them in my space telling me what to do. Uh, sometimes people are right and sometimes people are wrong, but but people feel that intrusion and I think that's the part of the disconnect people feel with government. It also doesn't matter how you approach people. If you approach people with respect and understand that, you know, like I, I keep saying, I've spent the last year sitting in front of this computer screen 
uh, zooming, sitting on my ass, and I haven't lost a paycheck. You know, uh, uh, end of the year, you know, uh, I, I was to my amazement, I, my, the, my accountant said, hey, you had a great year. It's like, how could I have had a great year? We're in the middle of a crisis. Well, your stocks went up, uh, you know, and and then we moralize about why you should shut your business down, why you should lose your, you know, paycheck. Well, it was important for people to do the things that were necessary. We see the tragic circumstances that have resulted from people not doing what needed to be done. But you have to approach people from the standpoint of their experience and speak to them with respect, which I think too often, not just government, but frankly, um, uh, you know, well-intended Democrats uh, don't do. Uh, but we, we can get into more of that later. I don't want to lose the thread of your story. Six years, six years, sixth grade, you're watching Perry Mason uh, in your little town in North Dakota, and you decide you want to be a lawyer. Um, did you tell, did you verbalize that? Did you tell your folks, I'm going to be a lawyer? Well, it, 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 to tell the whole story, I thought that I was going to be the first woman on the moon. You know, I was going to be an astronaut. And I always say sixth grade math did me in. I knew that, that was not where I was. So you went to plan to B, huh? <laughs> plan B, yeah, which, which most people who go to law school, that is plan B, in case you want to <laughs> believe it or not. Um, but, but, I, but I, I, you know, I, I said, look, you know, I knew that, that at the time, if you were a woman, your choices were to be a teacher, to be a nurse. Um, uh, and if you were really headed for the glamour to be a flight attendant, right? Uh, stewardess as they were known at the time. And then you were going to do all that until you had babies and then you were going to go home and people forget it wasn't that long ago. I mean, I'm only 65 years old and I would have been, you know, 11 at the time. So less than 50 years ago, the opportunities that we all experience today, it's kind of like we we're talking about government when young women say, well, I don't believe in feminism. I always want to say, well, then give it back. You know, just give back what you've got from the feminist movement, which is a lot of liberty, a lot of freedom, and, and a lot of choices that you didn't you, and would never have before. And so I think we forget our history way too often. And for me, it was like, um, I wanted to be a criminal defense attorney. Of course, then I eventually became a prosecutor. Um, but um, about the time that you started off uh, as Perry Mason and ended up as Hamilton Berger. <laughs> I hope you won more often than he did. Than yeah. yeah, I hope you won yeah. more often. Yeah, yeah. But 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 honestly, I think um, it, people laughed when I said I was going to be a lawyer, because at the time, I think about five percent of the women uh, the people in law school were women. By the time I went to law school um, in 1977, um, it was. 30% of my class were women, and now it's well over half for many law schools. You did internships. You did internships in the North Dakota State Legislature. You ultimately, uh, you did one in, in, in Congress, right? Yeah, I worked for something. This is before there were big staffs over at the House, um, and they used to pool their resources, their staff resources, and they would basically create study groups or study conferences. And so my my internship was with something called the Environmental Study Conference, which people forget that Republicans were leaders of the environmental movement yeah. in the seventies. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so so it was um, an interesting experience um, working in Congress for one of these study conferences and doing briefings on the reauthorization of the Clean Air Act, the reauthorization of the Clean Water Act, Surface Mining Reclamation Act. That was a that was like the pinnacle of legislating on important environmental uh, events. And it really it really formed, you know, I was interested in, in the environmental movement, but it really formed a lot of kind of my desire to specialize in environmental law. It's interesting to me that you gravitated there because as you mentioned, North Dakota, uh, it's an energy state. Uh, and uh, so, you know, this raises the, the, the sort of tension between environmentalism and now the climate movement which really was uh not not uh, uh relevant relevant then and uh, and and the sort of day-to-day -day, uh f 
financial well-being of of people in states like yours uh and it strikes me that this is a real tension because to the to the to the country to the world climate change is a um is a an existential matter to uh people who extract energy from the ground or deliver it as your father did uh, uh by trucks or pipeline or build the pipelines it uh, the paycheck is an existential matter you have to look at the environmental movement of the 70s differently than where we are right now the thing about climate is it's invisible uh, what was happening in the 70s was not invisible uh, the Cuyahoga River basically catching on fire. Yes. Famous song by Randy Newman yeah. talking burn about on, it. Cuyahoga, you burn on, Cuyahoga, yeah. burn on. Yep. You, you can't, um, uh, John Prine wrote a number of, um, you know, uh, you know, Paradise, uh, one of my favorite songs of all time about, uh, about mountaintop mining um, and what that was doing to communities. And so there was a, there was a, uh, uh, you know, you couldn't see L.A., I mean, you know, so so everything was so in the environmental movement was so physical. You couldn't eat the fish out of the Great Lakes. Yeah, David. Yes, I, I remember. Mean, yeah. So, so yeah, so so I think again that history is such an important part, and why it's more difficult now is you can't see climate, although we're starting to experience it. Yeah, and and we're starting starting to experience the cost of not paying attention, um, and and so I think. You know, we've got to connect the dots. I'm, I'm part of a, a group right now that is trying to um, find a path forward for forestry and for agriculture to be part of the solution and not resisting no, no, no. And the good news is that the corn growers have said, yes, we want to engage. The soybean growers want to engage. All of the large commodity groups see there's an opportunity. And here is, is an interesting Thing about what's happening with um, with the intersection of agriculture with climate. Um, I, I was having a conversation with my soybean growers. I call them mine. I, they're no longer mine. I guess I'm not in the Senate anymore. But I spent a lot of time with these guys talking about policy. And and um, very smart farmer said this. He said, "We have to have an international market. And if we're not changing how we grow." what we have in a sustainable way, we may not be in the international market. You know, he saw that sustainability is going to yeah. be one of those things that that is going to be, you know, either offer a premium or uh, essential to accessing markets. And you're seeing that with, with all kinds of buyers of commodities right now. They want to know how was this raised? How was this grown? How was, how was, um, you know, how, what were the practices that we were engaged in? And so then the question becomes, if we're going to use the landmass of farmers and, and, uh, and ranchers, how do we compensate them for the work that they're going to do in climate? And yeah. the other thing, it, you know, and, and going back to climate, I, 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 I preached this when I was in the Senate. When I got to the Senate, the coal industry and the mining industry would come in and I'd say, look, you can have my vote. You know, that's my constituency. But if you want my leadership, you can't be hell no. And that's how that led to probably the single most important piece of, um, of climate legislation um, in the six years that I was there, which was the expansion of 45Q, which is a tax credit for sequestering and utilizing uh, CO2 in industrial processes. Um, we also were able to cut a deal on opening up oil and gas to the international market, which I don't think created any additional utilization of, of oil. It just replaced one barrel with an American barrel. We, we did that in conjunction with stabilizing production tax credits and investment tax credits, production tax credits, which was essential to the growth of the wind energy industry and the investment tax credits essential to solar. And when we paired those two things together, that's why you saw this incredible growth in the use of renewable resources, because it became economic. And, and as we have developed the industry, now those in those um, uh, generation methods are now more economical because they are more mature. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. 
you spent a brief period of time uh, at the EPA, and then you came back to North Dakota and you went to work for the tax commissioner's office for Kent Conrad, who had gone to become uh, the senator. Um, tell me about that, because you, you'd think tax commissioner is kind of a dry uh, place to be, <laughs> but uh, you spent, uh, you spent uh, not just... Uh, working there, you ended up running and becoming the tax commissioner after Conrad went off to the Senate. Why was that a place to be? You know, it was just a place where I got a job. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell All you right. honestly. You get points for honesty there. there. Yeah. All right. She's not bullshitting <laughs> you folks. There. Yeah. Um, you know, I was at EPA and Ann Gorsuch came in, which yeah. is something I mentioned to his her son. Whose vote, um, whose, whose was, confirmation yeah. you voted for. Yeah, she was yeah, she was notorious yeah. uh, as head of the yeah. EPA. He cut me off very quickly. Said that was a difficult time for my family. Okay, <laughs> I guess I will not talk about that. Um, but but um, what? So so I was kind of this young idealistic. You know, uh, you know, I had seen I had seen reauthorization of water. I had seen reauthorization of the Clean Air Act. I had seen Congress work to protect something I thought was really important. And I was really excited about doing policy work, which is why I went to Lewis and Clark Law School, um, went back to EPA. That was even before Superfund had been passed. I was part of the um, task force um, that dealt with the Love Canal cases, which are famous hazardous waste dumping cases. And so it was kind of the beginning of, of uh, Superfund and RICRA. And, and so that was my passion. And then something happens, David. It's called an election. And um, Ronald Reagan, frequently touted as the greatest Republican president ever, abandoned the Republican principles. Lincoln fans would object to that, but yes. Yeah. Abandoned the environmental direction that the the Republican Party had taken. And basically, um, through something called the Rocky Mountain uh, uh, Legal Foundation, I think it was called, um, yes. started uh, adopting the policies of somebody named James Watt. And Ann yeah. Gorsuch was actually an acolyte of, um, and Buford, who was her husband, um, he was he was the head of BLM. And so I saw that political unraveling of what I thought was state policy and said, oh, now I get it. You cannot be, you cannot be, um, kind of doing good policy work without being involved in politics. Uh-huh. And pretty young to, to kind of come to that conclusion. Um, I needed to get home in part because I didn't want to stay in D.C. Plus, my now husband was doing his fourth year of medical school in um, in Bismarck. We had been having a long-term relationship, and it was kind of like, okay. College, college now would relationship, be the time. Right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, here's, here's a little annoyed factoid. So I move home to... Um, be with my now husband, and he is a fourth-year medical student, never home. And that that winter, for 45 days, it never got above zero. And I had been living in Portland. I had been living in Washington, D.C. I was like, what the heck am I doing? <laughs> but um, I got a job, and Kent Conrad um, liked me and said, why don't you come to work? And it was never going to be a long-term thing. Um, but I got very intrigued by the similarities between tax policy and environmental policy, highly regulatory, highly statutory, you know, and and I I started understanding that tax policy is a huge part of what government does. And it, it's a huge part in reflecting government values. And so got very invested and very engaged in tax policy eventually. Um, can't convince me to run for office when I was 28 years old. I ran for state auditor, lost a close race um, against a 12-year incumbent. Nobody thought I would even come close. And so when Kent went to the Senate, the governor at the time, who was a Democrat, appointed me to be tax commissioner, where I did a lot of, I, I hope, good work and good thinking. But those the, that knowledge and those skills that I was able to secure very early on whether it was administrative skills, whether it was listening skills, um, political skills uh, were invaluable. So I really consider my time in the tax department to be uh, a real, you know, higher education of PhD in, in government. Before I, I, I want to ask you one more question about that and move on, because I, I could spend hours talking to you about your 
your your journey, but um, losing that race at 28, um, you know, I'm always interested in how people uh, handle a loss. You've had you've had a number of them as well as wins. Yeah, three losses, um, and but you were quite young. Uh, how how was that a was that a hard moment for you to be? No, huh? No, it wasn't. In part because that my motivation in running for state auditor, um, and I would have been, I think, a good state auditor, but it wasn't my life's passion to be a state auditor. Um, but my motivation was, uh, I tried to get a bunch of women to run, women who had been on school boards and mm-hmm. Democrat, and they all said no. And you know, I, that's not for me. And I was at the time single. I got married in the middle of that race and had no children. And so, okay, what, what do you risk? Get in your car and drive around the state um, for three months. So and, you knew that that, you know, that losing was a real possibility. Oh yeah. No one expected I was going to win. In fact, a lot of people forget that I lost that race because it really elevated me as a political figure in North Dakota to have come so close when yeah. nobody thought I could win. And so probably the race that was, um, uh, you know, I always say was a recalibrating race for me on how hard it was to lose was the race for governor. Yeah. I'm going to get to that in a second. Yeah. Well, which is good because we should, but uh, I just want to point out when you were state tax commissioner, you led a fight uh, to keep, uh, uh, to to have catalog retailers collect sales taxes and say it was really a forerunner Mm -hmm. of an issue that we still cope with today. That is, kind of been turbocharged by the internet, but you've got all these retailers in your state and every state competing with these. Here's the interesting story. So when Kenton or Byron had always led this effort in the Senate to um, have Congress uh, basically give authorization to the states to collect what we call remote sales Mm -hmm. based on economic theory. Um, So long legal and, and so I was part of the litigation team that litigated the Quill case, which basically the court said you couldn't do. Um, and so when uh, Dick Durbin, when I got there, Dick Durbin, you know, kind of asked his staff, well, maybe Heidi will take over for where Byron left off and help me with this catalog sales thing. And would you think she'd be interested? And they laughed and said, have you read the caption of the Quill case? Because <laughs> my name is actually in the caption as the as the uh it's actually but it's a really a big deal uh because uh no it was a really big deal and it is now i mean you know when you see what amazon and yeah but you know we passed uh, the the supreme court um and 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 okay little known discussion um i had read uh, uh at the time judge gorsuch's opinion on something called the Tax Anti-Injunction Act, where he basically suggested that he believed Quill was wrongly decided. Yeah. Um, and so in, in, no, in no small... So he would have been on your side. Was, huh? Yep, yep. Yeah. And he was on my side on Indian stuff, too. Yeah, right. So, you know, I could I could make a case for why Gorsuch might be a pivotal person on the court. And, you know, um, you know, I had a different result with with uh, Kavanaugh. But 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 I would tell you this. The other thing that we did in the tax department was something called worldwide unitary taxation as we were looking for a way to basically make multinational corporations reflect their economic activity in states um, more clearly and be taxed uh, more fairly. Um, it was not something, it was California and North Dakota and mm-hmm. Montana, a number of states had adopted this. And it's something that's very interesting to me now, as you look at um, the kind of morass of the uh, of the IRS um, in terms of taxation of multinationals. Yeah. So we did a, we did a lot of really creative work in the tax department. I'm really proud of that work. You went on to uh, two terms as attorney general. You you really emphasize. First of all, is the attorney general? I, I gather the attorney general of North Dakota has prosecu- criminal prosecutorial powers. Um, North Dakota is is one of those hybrids. Um, it's not Delaware. The AG's office has exclusive jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. In most states, the AGs will take a case from the local county if there's a conflict, will participate, may in fact. We, we did a fair amount of prosecution, especially of complicated child sexual assault cases, things that the state's attorneys who, you know, many times in North Dakota would have been part-time, 
um, we did we did a lot of that work. Plus, probably the biggest part of the law enforcement portfolio for the North Dakota AG is that um, you you run and are the head of the Bureau of Criminal Investigation, which is the state police. So you emphasized uh, violence against women. Uh, you helped uh, toughen uh, uh, child uh, sex, sexual child abuse laws in the in the state, uh, sex offender laws in the state, I should say. You led an effort. You were part of the effort on the uh, the great tobacco litigation uh, in the state. Those were those were big things. And then you ran for governor, as you pointed out, in two thousand. Uh, and uh, uh, you ran against John Hoven, now the senator, uh, was your colleague for a while. During that race in September of that year, you were diagnosed with uh, with breast cancer. Your, your personal struggle became very much central uh, to that. That must have been, tell me what, tell me, just describe going through that experience. You're running for governor of your state, and all of a sudden you, you're diagnosed with a potentially mortal illness. You have young children. It must have been terribly hard to say, to say the obvious. It's interesting because I think that Sometimes when when you look back at experiences, you say, oh, that must be hard. But it didn't seem hard at the time. Honestly, it didn't. I was kind of like, OK, put one foot in front of the other. This is what you got to do to get stuff done. You, you just, you know, power through it. Um, I thought you're going to ask me if I regretted not hiring you to run my race. Yeah, well, that would have been smart. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, that goes without saying that I regret not having been involved in your race. Uh, but I did. I did. You know. I did. I don't know whether I contacted you, uh, but I did. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did it. I mean, we talked. And so that was years ago. Yes. I mean, literally 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, but I knew you were the real deal, David. And maybe maybe I would have had a different outcome. Well, I would but... have loved to have I would have loved to have uh, ridden that road with you. But, you know, you were leading uh, and there was some, I saw some intimation that people that you actually lost ground, even though there was tremendous amount of public support for you, because there was this concern that maybe your health wouldn't permit you to do the job. So, I mean, you never know in politics, and you know this, um, whether something is, you know, what, what effect it has, because it's all cumulative. Everything that you do in a race is cumulative. And and it's it's really a rare event where you can say that's the thing that did it. And in both of these losses, whether it's the Kavanaugh decision that I made or whether it was breast cancer in my race, you know, I I really always hesitate to say that's the moment that I knew I was going to lose because, you know, who knows? You maybe you lost without it. Maybe you would have won if you had done it differently, but you make these decisions. But but my favorite story about um this is we were I was back on the campaign trail after I'd been diagnosed. I had surgery. I would already probably had a, a treatment. Um, and, you know, they were taking when you're when you're undergoing some pretty serious chemotherapy because my cancer was stage three A, um, which meant that it had already metastasized. Yeah. And so um, it wasn't it wasn't unserious. Um, I, my husband and I had just gotten done uh at a, at a political event, I think it was a parade, and we were at something called Kroll's Kitchen having breakfast, and uh, this guy came up to me and he said, you know, you're, you're Heidi Heitkamp, and I said, yeah, and, and Darwin's there with me, and he says, you know, I'm a Democrat, but I'm not going to vote for you. And my husband says, well, why? And he says, um, because you're a woman and you have cancer. And I said, oh, and Darwin wants to argue with this guy. And I said, I just looked at this guy and I said, there is nothing I can do about either of those facts. So I'm just going to eat my breakfast and you can go sit down. <laughs> um, the other story that I tell from this race is the the difficulty that a young mother back then had. Yes. I was in my 40s. My daughter was 14 and my son was 10. And people would ask me, how old are your kids? And I would say, oh, 10 and 14, you know, blah, 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 daughters in swim team. And, you know, so I would talk about my kids or they would ask, how old are your kids? Mm -hmm. And you would just see a big bubble come up over like, their head. Right. Heidi Eichamp, a bad mother, abandoning her children. And I and I would say, well, they're the same age as John Hovind's. <laughs> you know, and, and the message was pretty clear. You don't ask him that question. Yes. Yeah. And and so it's it's. um. 
you know, I think being a young mother was not helpful. Then Nancy Schaefer, who was the first lady at the time, did an ad. We got, we called it the infamous pink suit ad, and they had more points on that ad. They ran it like, I mean, I like every time you turned on the TV, it was Nancy Schaefer, and, and her message was, John Hoven and his wife, Mikey, are um, not only the best equipped to bring new economic opportunity to North Dakota, but they're the best equipped to represent North Dakota. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and probably the most sexist thing in politics that's ever happened to me was that ad. And uh, finally, a reporter in the, uh, from, uh, from Fargo asked um, Ed Schaefer, her, her husband, what does Nancy mean by that ad? What does she mean they're best equipped to represent North Dakota? And Ed, I think a little, uh, a little sheepish about it, said, well, she means like her, you know, carry on her work on breast cancer and child immunizations. And I had been diagnosed with breast cancer at the time. And so uh, the reporter said, what's your response to that? And I said, well, I'm not even going to mention the stuff with breast cancer. But I said, my husband can not only talk about immunizations, he can give them. He's a family physician. And so, you know, but, but, but that, I remember when Sheryl Sandberg came to the Senate, she wanted to meet with all the women senators. And I, you know, I haven't read her book. I don't know her, but I wanted to go there because I wanted to make this point that at the time, over half of the Democratic women in the Senate had tried to become governor and failed and then were later elected to the Senate. It is much easier for a woman at, and, and at the time, and I think even today, um, because they have a hard time visualizing women in that executive role. I had this discussion with Gina Raimondo, who's about to become the uh, Secretary of Commerce, Governor of Rhode Island, and she said the toughest resistance she met with was with older uh, older women who had, not, who had made the choice to stay at home and felt like, how can you do all of, she has young children as well, how can you do all this? And, you know, she, she said it was a very tough uh, audience for her. Yeah, so, so to uh, my, my aunt, you know, memory, was always diligent, was making phone calls for me, and she called this woman from a very heavy, at the time, heavily Democratic area of the state, and she said, oh, you know, I'm Heidi Heitkamp's aunt, and we're just calling to see if you would you know, you know, kind of uh, to reach out. And she said, Heidi Heikamp, I have a scrapbook. Every time she's in the paper, I cut it out and I put it in the scrapbook. And so memory says, really? She said, so then you'll be supporting her for governor. She goes, oh, no, honey, that's a man's job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listen, I got to, we're going to run out of time and I've not even gotten to your uh, Senate tenure. So I want to just, you won by 3,000 votes in 2012, which talked, you know, spoke to how tough the, the state was that, that you know, uh, that that year. Um, and it's gotten tougher since, obviously. I want to just ask you two things. I want to ask you how difficult was it to try and be representative of your state, uh, to try and be independent uh, and, uh, uh, and and survive? Because it in some ways, you, you did a lot of things that would certify you as independent, but you're still a Democrat. And so those things didn't necessarily help you politically. Well, I think we're all part of the journey that we were on. And one of the things that I realized when I lost the race for governor is that I had been kind of making decisions based on, were you going to like me? I mean, well, could I be popular? And, and when I lost that race, and people say, well, how did cancer change your life? I said, losing an election changed my life more than anything. I decided it was really important that I like myself. And so when I, you know, no one thought I was going to win the Senate seat. And when I got that seat, I thought, yes, you represent North Dakota. But at the end of the day, you got to look yourself in the mirror and say, did I make the right decisions, not just for my constituents today, but for the next seven generations, deeply moved by kind of that visual that Native American people have, that leaders have an obligation, not just for this generation, not today, but for seven generations. And so I really thought a lot about um, the tough decisions. And, and I had made a lot of tough decisions. I'd like to think that with maybe one or two possible exceptions, they weren't, they weren't political decisions. They were decisions that I made because 
I thought they were the right decisions. One of them was uh, at the end of your tenure uh, to vote against the nomination of uh, of uh, Justice Kavanaugh. Um, and there are a lot of people who, uh, when you cast that vote, said that's the end. Uh, first of all, w- uh, what was your thinking through that process? You're in the middle of a tough reelect. Uh, you cast that vote. Um, and uh, uh, do you think that it, 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 it cost you that election? Well, you know this from doing campaigns. Um, and, and as being, you know, if you're a trial lawyer, you have to have a theory of your case. And the theory of my case was two things. Number one, I wasn't going to be with Trump 100% because I couldn't be. Kevin Kramer, who was my opponent, now Senator Kramer, told people he was going to be with Trump 100% of the time. Um, And the other theory of my case is that I was an independent voice, that when I agreed with Trump, I'd be with him when I disagreed. And when that decision came so late in the cycle, um, and and against a backdrop of of a... unrest and, and, you know, lots of protests and everybody forgets that it was against the debacle of what was the hearing and then match that up with what happened um, with, with the outpouring of trauma from women who had been sexually abused um, in their lifetime coming to Washington to say, don't let this happen. Don't reward someone who has been, uh, you know, legitimately accused of this. Um, You know, when I, I there's a couple things and and first off i believed her i believed dr ford i have no doubt in my mind she was telling the truth and no doubt when people say oh maybe it was somebody else bullshit that that and 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 that comes from working with sexual assault yeah i mean victims. you've spent a, a a career working on these issues yeah. And so I knew that the most important thing that you could do, and eventually I called Dr. Ford. She was gracious enough to take my call. And I said, "Um, I just want you to know one thing because I think it's important. I believe you. And sometimes, you know, that when, when we dealt with sexual assault victims and we couldn't get a prosecution, it was always important that they hear that. And so I wanted her to hear that from me. The other thing is he lied about a whole lot of other stuff, right? I mean, Ralphing was about his sick tummy and, you know, come on. I mean, he had put his hand on a Bible and swore he was going to tell the truth. And then he proceeded to just lie, you know, kind of like Donald Trump, um, you know, kind of blatantly. And everybody's like giving him a free ride. And and so, you know, people said, but you were obligated to vote your constituents. And I said, I'm making this decision for 30 years. Uh, you know, he's going to be on the court for 30 years. I don't think he'll ever distinguish himself as anything other than a solid conservative jurist. But, you know, he he certainly the the other thing I would say, and, you know, I, I've said this publicly before, um, I had the chance to interview interview um, Justice Gorsuch and I had the chance to interview uh, Brett Kavanaugh. I don't think there is any comparison between their intellect. I think Kavanaugh is way and, and that may make him more dangerous because he is so brilliant. I remember when you made the decision, and it was very—it was a very emotional uh, thing. Uh, and it, did you know that you were? I mean, I don't know where you thought you were in the race at the moment. Did you get advice? Don't do this. This will, uh, yeah. And so, and, and especially, especially when it didn't matter. You know, there's always this thing of, you know, and that's that's the the what happened in the impeachment trial. You know, well, you can vote this way because it doesn't matter. It's not just a one vote thing. And you have to decide whether you're going to take that precious thing you've been given by the people of your state, which is that vote to represent them and how you're going to how you're going to present that and, and use that vote. And And so to me, I knew, you know, who knows? It's like I'm saying, David, you know. Who knows whether I would have won or not won. But I know one thing. I couldn't look myself in the mirror and say I had done the right thing. I would have said I might have been done the politically expedient thing. And losing that race for governor taught me, look, it's not the end of the world. There's life after this. People think in in Washington and politics, the world revolves around them. Get over yourself. You are not so special. That's why the U.S. Senate is the world's uh, most gilded assisted living center, because people can't imagine life without it, you know. 
Um, so, so well, I, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I just, I just think that I feel sad for all those people who watched the presentation on the impeachment and then decided to vote in a way that was so wrong, in my opinion, that was so reflective of expediency and not deliberation. We should point out on the way out that you're engaged in a, an effort called One Country to try and re- reconnect Democrats with uh, rural America. It's an important effort. All the people out there who think, oh, well, you know, we're the party of suburbia, Democrats and, and urban, and we can win, see, you know, look where we are, and we didn't win rural America. I'd ask you to go out on our website, one country, um, Project uh, dot I think it's dot com, and um, just look at the analysis. and And I think uh, you know you can bear this out as well. That if we see these trends continue, um, you know what what you have is you have a politically divided country that continues to be politically divided, but you have a very fragile victory. Yeah. Um, uh, politically, and so this reconnect. And I think one of the things that I get in trouble is I just want progressives, especially those who think that language doesn't matter, language like defund the police doesn't matter. I want them to understand how hard it is in places where we're from when that can be demonized, when socialism can be demonized, and how that language that defines the Democratic Party then labels a local Democratic leader. I, here's here's the factoid that I want to leave your audience with. When I ran in 2012, um, uh, my pollster said, oh, about 20% or or about that amount of Republicans in your state will cross over and vote for a Democrat. When I sought re-election, it was only four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's been and reflected so, in, in all kinds of data all over the country. Now, listen, that's tough. I, I think that uh, if for Democrats to build a sustain, sustainable uh, governing majority, you can't do that as a, a, a bunch of large blue islands surrounded by an ocean of red in this country. That's that's not going to work. And uh, it, it creates the fragility uh, that you talk about. So uh, I, I couldn't agree. Well, more. And, it, it, and it renders a country that's unge- ungovernable. Yeah, because we're all in our corners yelling as opposed to finding some common ground. I, I agree. I agree. Heidi Heitkamp, always great to be with you. Thank you so much. Sorry to be so long-winded. Hey, listen, it's wind well spent. (laughs) (laughs) I could listen to you forever. Thanks a lot. Great to see you. You bet. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.